If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar. Thousands of hopeful gold seekers with bulging packs strapped to their backs, braved the freezing temperatures of the Yukon in northern Canada, scaled icy trails and sailed down miles of dangerous rapids before finally arriving at the Klondike goldfields, only to find that all the good claims had already gone. Our sub-editor, Rhiannon Davis, spoke to Stephen Tufnell about the Klondike gold rush, a two-year whirlwind that saw 100,000 prospectors set out for the Yukon, and the promise of fabulous riches that, for many, remained stubbornly out of reach. So for my first question then, what was the Klondike Gold Rush? Well, the Klondike Gold Rush is really a series of, of gold rushes. There's not any one particular rush moment, though there is a really famous, popular phase of the gold rush. And the first rush begins uh, in the summer of 1897, and that's when the gold is discovered. And so the story goes uh, is that two First Nations people from the Targish clan, popular, one, one popularly known as Skokum Jim uh, and his brother, uh, and their brother-in-law, uh, George Cormack, uh, are prospecting for gold in the Yukon River Valley. Uh, and they've been doing that for a number of years, but also living a fairly subsistence sort of lifestyle, trapping, trapping animals for fair uh, and things like that. Uh, and on a tip-off from other, other gold miners in the region, they move into uh, a place what's then called Rabbit Creek. Uh, and start um, panning for gold uh, and find some quite sizable nuggets. What happens is they Im- immediately stake their claim to to um, to the creek uh, and and stake four claims in total. So as first discoverer or alleged first discoverer, George Cormack stakes two claims, uh, and then the two uh, Targish brothers stake one claim uh, above uh, Cormack's and one claim below. Uh, so they take the prime the prime real estate, as it were, uh, from the off. And it's at that point that um, Cormac renames Rabbit Creek Bonanza Creek, uh, announcing, you know, that the gold rush is about to begin. Uh, curiously, what happens then is sort of under the kind of like unwritten law uh, of gold miners is that they then spread the news quite widely amongst other prospectors who are in the region. Uh, so the Yukon Valley has been, uh, and the kind of upper part of um, British Columbia has been uh, a sort of quite extensively searched uh, over the past sort of 10 or 20 years for gold. Um, so there are a lot of prospectors already in the region uh, and they spread the news quite rapidly then. Uh, and about 200 miners then move into Eureka Creek, which is one of the tributaries into the Great Yukon River. And that's the fir- that's what we think of as the first phase of the rush, really. Uh, second phase then happens in the spring of 1898. So as the news filters down through, through Yukon territory into British Columbia, into parts of US-controlled Alaska, 
uh, a further sort of 2,000 or so miners rush into the, the region and again stake their claims to the prime real estate on, uh, on Bonanza Creek and then uh, on uh, another creek uh, that is quickly called uh, El Dorado um, Creek. So they, they, they actually, in the second phase of the rush, all, all of the gold bearing seams are taken up really quite quickly. Uh, and this is the sort of tragic irony of the of the Yukon rush. When the when the rush proper sets in uh, in the winter of 1898 uh, and into the spring of 1899, mo- most of the payable ground has already been taken. Um, but what happens is that the, the gold that comes back uh, into San Francisco and into Seattle and those uh, northern Pacific ports uh, are on the west coast of the United States triggers a gold rush uh, and there's sort of this sort of language of untold riches to be found in the in the the creeks and riverbeds of the Yukon Valley and we think about a best estimate is about 100,000 people then uh, begin the trip um, to the Yukon and in total about 30 to 40,000 of those make it into the Yukon River Valley so the the, the interesting thing about that that rush though is that it's um is its brevity. The rush itself is probably over by uh, late 1899, uh, certainly by the autumn of 1899, when thousands of those rushers who have kind of gone into the Yukon are disappointed with the fact that they can't get uh, into the payable ground. and They, they rush off again um, to Nome and Alaska. And so the, the Yukon gold rush is really, we're talking about a two-year period, where there's a dramatic influx of people into the Yukon River Valley, a place that's very sparsely settled by, by white settlers anyway. And, and it's over almost as soon as it, as soon as it begins, really. And before we delve more deeply into the rush itself, in terms of the geography, where exactly is the Yukon? Where is this region that we're talking about? So Yukon Territory is in the far west of of Canada, um, borders um, US-controlled Alaskan territory. The United States has has only recently bought Alaska uh, from Russia in 1867 um, and has spent some money um, trying to develop the, the region, but it's not uh, it's r- r- widely regarded as um, Seward's folly. Uh, so William Henry Seward is the Secretary of State responsible for buying it. Uh, and at the time, no one can really understand why. Uh, and um, uh, so that very little um, time and energy has been spent in developing Alaska. Uh, it's also a kind of disputed border zone um, between Canada uh, and the United States government. And the Yukon River Valley sort of spans that border area. So on the US side of the border, there's places such as Skagway, uh, and then on the um, Canadian side is a very small kind of um, camp called Dai, which is really a, a First Nations um, sort of fishing camp, but there are some settlers in the region. What's really happening there is that um, settlers and uh, government inspectors are sort of slowly moving in. The Royal Mounted Police is slowly moving into the territory um, to start to organise it and take control of it. But the the power is really held by the First Nations people on the the, the coast, the, the Klingit people, who are the mediators in the trade between sort of fur trappers and traders on the coasts, uh, and the Targish people in the interior uh, of Yukon Territory. So it's a place of very sparse settlement. The, the major city of, of, the, of the Yukon Gold Rush, um, Dawson City, um, is little more than, than a camp uh, And uh, at this point in time. Uh, and even at the, at the height of the rush, it only numbers about 20,000 people and quite quickly is depopulated as the miners uh, move out of it. So it's um, a space that's very much on the, on the periphery uh, uh, of both Canada and the United States in this period. And thinking about the miners, what kind of people would take part in the gold rush? What kind of personalities did it draw? By this point, what's interesting about the, the Klondike gold rush too is that it's, um, it's nostalgic uh, and it's even um, kind of self-referential amongst the mining community. So it's widely advertised in the American press and in the Canadian press as the sort of last great gold rush. Um, and so what you find is that 
there's a sort of real mixture uh, of people who kind of move in. Some are the kind of grizzled descendants of or actual 49ers uh, who really have been riding trans-Pacific kind of gold rushes around, um, since the mid-19th century. So they're, and they're, they're sort of one last hurrah, one last roll of the dice uh, in the Yukon. They're, they're, they're kind of quite a large proportion of the, uh, of the gold rush population. Uh, and then um, it's a real mixture then uh, of uh, what one, one um, sort of local resident at the time calls it, uh, the gamblers of a hundred hells, old-time miners from quiet firesides, beardless boys, from their books, human parasites uh, and dreamers from the seven seas. So it is considered to be this sort of um, ragtag population. We think uh, that so our best estimate is that it's about 40% uh, American-born, though probably about 90% US citizens. Um, so many of the miners too are um, uh, sort of re- recently migrated Europeans who are then re-migrating out of the United States from the Northern Territories in the United States uh, into um, into the Canadian Territories. And then, as I said, there's this sort of large population of, um, or large-ish population of Indigenous Canadians in the region and kind of Canadian citizens proper. But what's interesting is that at the height of the rush, um, we think about 40,000 people kind of make it into the Yukon Valley. It sort of pales in comparison to earlier gold rushes. So the beginning of this 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 era um, of, of gold rushes with California, somewhere like San Francisco Bay, uh, which on the eve of the gold rush there is really is 12 houses, about 800 people. Uh, and within two two years is a city of 50,000. And the, the, the sort of population of the state as a whole grows even, even more quickly. Um, the Yukon rush really kind of s- sort of um, pales in comparison in, in terms of the scale of human mobility. Um, into the region, though, as I said, very peripheral place, uh, very much on the edge of empire. And so this is nevertheless still a a major influx of people into the region. It tends to be quite male-dominated too. And this is a feature of gold rush societies around the world. So in California, to to draw the comparison further, about 90% of the population in the uh, 1860 census is is male. Um, And it's not quite as high in the uh, in the Yukon case, but still very much dominated by young men uh, hoping to make their their fortunes uh, and, and and really in some ways hoping just to be involved in the kind of great adventure. Because by as I mentioned, it's sort of self-referential by this point and nostalgic. Part of the booster literature is about um, you know reigniting the old time days of forty nine. Uh, this is a generation of people who've been brought up on those tales too. So gold rushes are as much kind of cultural events in that sense uh, as they are. Um, migrations by the turn of the 20th century. And you mentioned that it's a very peripheral location, right on the edge of empires, really the new frontier. So how did people travel there? What kind of dangers were involved? Travelling to the Yukon is very, very tricky um, uh, at this point in time. And that accounts for the real winnowing of the 100,000 to about 30 to 40,000. Still still a significant um, amount. There's sort of four or five different routes um, into the Yukon. One, the so-called, the so-called rich man's route uh, is to board a steamer in San Francisco or Seattle and to sail around Alaska and then up the Yukon River and finally into the camp um, that becomes Dawson City. That's the rich man's route. Um, large because a, a steam t- steamship ticket will cost you anywhere between five hundred to a thousand dollars. That's before you've even bought all your provisions, uh, and you need probably about a ton provisions to make it work in the uh, in the in the, in the Yukon. Um, so, very small minority uh, move through the kind of so-called rich man's passage, sometimes called the All American Route as well. By far, the most common passage uh, is to uh, probably take a 
a, a steamship up to the kind of lower part of the Yukon uh, and to get off at one of the great kind of transit cities or transit camps of the of the region, either Skagway, as we mentioned earlier, or um, Dai, which become kind of clearing houses for, for the migrant populations there. You, once you're at Skagway or Dai and you've collect, you know, unloaded your provisions on the beach there and about to set off on the trek, really... It's the most, it's the cheapest because it's the most direct route, but it is the most treacherous. Uh, and so there, there are two ways there. If you're at Dai, you're you're probably going to take the uh, the White Pass, uh, and if you're at um, Skagway, you're going to take the Chilkut Pass. Um, so that's the really famous image of this um, of this gold rush is the sort of line of miners um, hiking up the the very very steep graded uh, mountainside and sort of made famous by Charlie Chaplin's um, 1925 film, The Gold Rush, which is, is really a recreation of, of those images of the uh, miners walking up the Chilkut Pass. So what you're doing is you, you cross the Chilkut Pass and you're trying to get to the lakes at the headwater of the Yukon River. Um, so you can then um, raft down to um, uh, Dawson City. But you can't do it in just one journey. And this is the major challenge or, or compounds the challenges of that route. Um, so that pass is only passable in winter. Uh, when the spring comes and the snow starts to melt, avalanches become more and more common. The roadway is boggy, uh, too muddy and too slippery to get horses or, or even a man over the top. So it, you're doing all this in kind of freezing sub-zero temperatures, relying on uh, the snow to hold as you do it. Um, so although it's this sort of 35-mile journey up and over the, the pass, Actually, most gold miners are making 30 to 40 trips to do that because they're moving their gear in stages to different cash points along the way because uh, they can only carry 50 to 100 pounds at a time. But under the law that sort of, um, or under the recommendations put in by the Royal Mounted Police uh, in the region, they have to take enough food um, to last a year. So that half, a, half a ton of their ton uh, of equipment is, is food because the, the Mounted Police are worried that Dawson will not be able to, they'll not be able to reprovision it in the winter and that starvation will set in. So um, before you enter the pass, your gear is weighed to make sure that you have the requisite amount. Uh, and you do, yeah, you do it in stages one after the other. So for those with a, with those miners with a bit of money, they might pay a, a Klingit indigenous First Nations person to uh, pack a, um, to carry their, their material over the over the pass, but st- even still, they're going to have to make multiple trips, uh, and the the freight rates, as it were, that it's not cheap. So it might be fifteen uh, some fifteen dollars per pound in the in a in a in the kind of good and easy passable time. If you're late to the game and you try and contract for a uh, once you're on the Chilkut Pass, the market will dictate you pay a higher rate, and some miners pay as much as fifty dollars per per pound. Uh, so it's exorbitantly expensive um, to do that. So that that's part of the challenge, really, is sort of managing your material, uh, and making this crucial decision between, you know, do I try and carry 100 pounds over the, over the pass or do I take 80 this time? And that probably means I have to go back again. So a trip that's only 35 miles, they're probably taking about three months to complete. And then the, that's the first stage of the, the difficulty, really. Uh, the next is that once you get to the headwaters of the Yukon uh, around um, kind of Lakes Bennett, you, you then need to sail down the Yukon itself. So in the spring, what happens is those miners have kind of camped there uh, and in the meantime, they've been sort of basically deforesting the, the riparian forests around Lake Bennett. Uh, and, and they try and raft down the, the Yukon River as, as people would, would the Mississippi River in the mid-19th century uh, with all of their gear. 
by, I guess by the spring of 1898, it's recorded it's about 7,000 or so rafts, each with four or five people trying to navigate that navigate that river. So incredibly treacherous. And if you, you miscalculate it or risk it and try and go through Horseshoe Falls, for instance, you're probably going to lose all of your gear, possibly your life, almost certainly the kind of raft that you've, you've built. So it's a very difficult, dangerous pathway. And then, you know, much to the chagrin of the, most of the rushes, once they get there, they find that, uh, you know, the best spots have already been taken. So it's uh, a, de- a journey fraught with danger. Very much, it's, unlike, it's atypical of many gold rushes in this period. You know, the overland journey to California may take three to four months and it's dangerous in lots of other ways. Um, but you can do it in the spring, you can do it in the summer, where you're very much dependent on the seasons uh, in the Yukon. And that, that's the same for the work, the labour of mining there, uh, and really for the whole experience. It's this sort of short windows of activity uh, which you can accomplish the work and the travel that you need to, uh, which makes the Yukon actually quite unique in that, in that phase of, of sort of mid-19th century rushes. And thousands of horses were killed as well, weren't they? That's right. So the... the Part of the huge toll of that journey is, um, yeah, is on, on the environment, on animals, but also on the kind of pack horses that are, um, are brought into the region too. And um, you know, many, like colloquially, many of the kind of passes are sort of dead, renamed sort of dead horse pass. And Harper's journalists and journalists from the New York Times comment on how you know the, the way is just strewn with with bodies of and corpses of horses and mules who have been discarded along the way. But these rushes, I think, are only in terms of the colour that they can get. You know, at the end of their journey, and have a very disposable view of animal life there, and um, will will work the animal to death to get to where they need to go in in the process. Um, so, yeah, a huge animal cost. That's all part of the, the the kind of strange market that kind of grows up around the the travel phase of the rush too. So, there's a market for horses for ox. Uh, in some ways, an ox is a better investment because you might kind of uh, walk it to death, as it were over the past, but then you can probably sell the meat at the end and recoup some of the money that you've invested in that. And some entrepreneurs by by um, the final phase in the sort of summer of 1898 and then uh, into 1899, they, they construct tramways and cable cars to help with the process of taking gear and goods over the, over the pass. But again, it comes at great expense. So the rushers are always making this calculation between, you know, what's affordable and convenient uh, versus what will hamper them in the long run uh, as well. Um, that, that sort of story ends quite quickly too in that by 1899, um, the Northern Pacific has constructed a railroad between Skagway and, and Dawson. And so you can kind of avoid all that there. Um, so there's this sort of brief period of the Chilkut Pass, which is really, you know, as I said, the, the image of the rush is this sort of brief moment. Uh, and after that, it becomes a much... Um, uh, some travellers start to say, oh, well, well the, the ones who come by in the past start to say, well, the railroad, it's a picnic all the way. You can do it, you know, uh, incredibly easily in that way. Um, so it takes a huge toll on environment in that respect, too, all along the way. Even if you're taking the old river route, um, uh, the steamships that are coming down the Yukon are consuming vast amounts of timber uh, as well. So it's an incredibly costly environmental enterprise in addition to um, financial one for the rushers. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. She sort of reflects, you know, everyone who comes here has this sort of strained eyeball look, as if they expect to find gold in the trees or on top of a rock, or you just lift up a tuft or clod of earth and there's the gold. Um, but there, really, I think that sense withers quite quickly. and It's a sad tale in a way. And you mentioned entrepreneurs, um, but it's not just legal enterprises that spring up as a result of the gold rush, is it? Can you tell us a bit about some of the crime that was caused as a result of it? Yeah, gold rush societies are sort of, um, I think, 
popular, popularly and in mythology uh, and in fact are, are quite um, violent places. Uh, um, the Yukon is is no different in that regard. So in 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 the cities like Dai and uh, in um, in Dawson, quite quickly um, gambling halls and saloons and prostitution spring up part of the the service sector and the entertainment sector of the mining economy. Uh, and so uh, Dawson itself has a large uh, kind of red light district, uh, which is associated with um, some of the kind of criminal enterprise there. Uh, and Dai, uh, there's a famous sort of criminal called Jim Sweet, who who sort of runs the under underworld there, I suppose. Um, so yeah, th- I guess that's part of the kind of like the great population of devils from the seven seas or the human parasites of of two continents, as, as observers sort of um, see it. That there's money to be made out of gold, but there's much more money to be made out of the the economy around gold, and you can do that legitimate legitimately in in merchant. Uh, merchant houses and uh, in equipping and um, supplying uh, the gold miners, but you can make just as much yeah in the gambling halls, the saloons, uh, and in the yeah the, the 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 darker world, I suppose, of of these gold rush societies. That's not to say that they're lawless. I mean, what's quite interesting about gold rushes is that they have a very strong sense of a kind of common law must apply, particularly around things like thieving, claim jumping, and so there are instances and famous images that. Um, of um, sort of sheep rustlers who are, are and thieves who are sort of whipped by vigilante justice, and in the absence of strong a strong central state authority, and before the Royal Mounted Police have asserted their um, kind of control over the region, diggers would often hold their own courts inside tents of you know and have juries of twelve to fifteen people and and distribute what we would think of as kind of mob justice in some respects, but it was an attempt to maintain order on those on those trails, and that's true of California as it is in. Uh, in the Yukon Territory as well, it was and it was brutal and harsh justice too. Um, there were no prisons to to house them in. Um, so a famous instance recorded by uh, Harper's Weekly journalist is of a sheep rustler who's caught uh, and is tied to one of the posts of the cable cars on the Chilcot Pass, whipped fifteen times, and then made to walk down back past all the people travelling up the pass with a sign saying "thief" around his neck. And um, so it's very much using. Uh, retributive forms of justice and then social shaming to try and control population there. So there's a sort of fine line, I think, between, you know, criminality, vigilantism and the kind of underworld in that respect. And thinking about money, how much gold was actually found in the Klondike gold rush? So best estimates are that about $29 million worth of gold uh, dug out between 1897 and 1899. So that's, that's quite a huge amount. In total, the region as a whole, we think about 12 million ounces have been dug out of it. And I think that comes up to the present day. But about half of that came out of those two two creeks that, that really were the, the base of the rush, uh, El Dorado and Bonanza. So there was money to be made. And, you know, Skookum Jim, George Cormack, the first movers there, made about half a million each uh, out of those. But of the 5,000 claims that are registered, um, in Dawson City, only about 200 pay out. So there is some money to be made on it, but it is a gamble. And miners, by this point, miners talk very much in terms of gold mining as a gamble. Uh, and that, that, in truth, that's part of the attraction. I think for those who are kind of riding those that, those waves of gold rushes from place to place, they're, it's almost as they, they speak of it as if they're addicted to the kind of process of kind of hunting and searching for the gold. For others, it's a great shock um, to find that... Um, you know the promise of free and easy wealth is is not easily realised, uh, and that um, gold mining is is very much like any other form of wage labour uh, in the late nineteenth century. So many are, many are seeking to escape 
uh, industrialized labor in um, the United States, um, but find that actually they have to work for the, on the claims of other people uh, or take a share in a claim uh, and work what's called a kind of lay. And um, so they own part of the profits, but not all of it, simply because most of the best, you know, best real estate has been taken by, by, the, by the first wave of rushes. Um, so there's a huge sense of disillusionment, and I guess that's where the nostalgia amongst the Russians themselves really kind of sets in. That you know, 49 was a good time, 98, 99, less so, uh, and and that accounts too for why they rush off to Nome and Alaska so quickly. So yeah, it's a gamble, and the problem is that the the gold is distributed very unevenly in the bedrock, and um, it's it's pure chance often as to who gets gets the the, the lucky strike, as it were. So I'm assuming that Klondike had quite a low proportion of gold. Were some of the earlier gold rushes? Did they have much higher yields? Yeah, I think that's that's right. The mid 19th century rushes, uh, collectively, in, in those rushes, more gold is mined uh, between 1848 and 18 and 99 uh, than in the free, previous three millennia. So they're very rich, like incredibly rich strikes. But the Yukon is not amongst not amongst those. That phase, that 20-year phase, really, of mining the Sierras um, is certainly up there. South Africa, uh, by this point, is really the, the, um, the, the richest of those um, strikes. What's common, I guess, um, to the later strikes, as opposed to California, is that um, there's, there's not really an, an alluvial phase um, to the mining. Uh, and so the, the strikes of the later 19th century, um, South Africa and um, the Klondike in particular, uh, very heavily capitalized and industrialized from the outset. Um, so there's very few. I mean, some of the fam- some of the images of the Yukon are of a kind of grizzled miner with pick and pan, sort of sifting the water. But actually, you need a lot of capital to mine gold in in the Yukon initially. So already the the miners are sort of digging with one ha- one arm behind their back, so to speak, because there's there's just not as much freely available in the riverbeds, and because the environment for extracting the gold is so challenging because of the environmental conditions in the Yukon. Even if you are lucky, the profits are not, are not enormous because you, you have to invest so much in, in labour, uh, in fuel, um, and in um, after the, the forests are sort of denuded in the region, in important wooden timber um, to kind of help you do what you need to do. So, yeah, the Yukon is a, uh, and maybe the Canadian listeners <laughs> won't like to hear this, it's really a footnote in the, in the story of those rushes. It's not, it's not one of the most celebrated or richest of those strikes. If you compare it to South Africa, for, for instance, so there's 5,000 claims in the Yukon and they produce about $29 million in those two years. In, uh, in South Africa, there's about 44 mining enterprises and they're, they're each producing a million dollars worth of gold annually. So it, it is of a, of a completely different scale um, in, in that respect. So you've said that the miners rush off to Nome and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about this and the sudden end of the Klondike gold rush. The, the Yukon Rush is really part of a, a broader exploration of the Yukon Valley uh, and the regions around it um, for gold and is a sort of um, intense moment of, of mining. But even before that, miners have been in that particular region uh, and they're also fanning out along the coasts um, searching for, um, for more gold. As part of that process, they, they're kind of moving along the beaches and when they hit uh, the sands in Nome Bay, uh, they just find that they're, they're very, very rich in, in gold. Uh, the news the news spreads very rapidly to Dawson by that point, in large part because in that two years of the rush, and this is one of the extraordinary features about it too in some ways, is that economies of Alaska and Yukon Territory are quite quickly integrated through through the railroad and through the sheer amount of steamships coming up and down the Yukon River. 
Uh, and because, um, you know, the, the sort of steamship route that sails around Alaska and, and, and Yukon Territory to get um, into the Yukon River Valley, all kinds of stops along the way for refueling and news spreads very quickly to those areas. But largely because um, so few people are making money in, in the Yukon Territory and because the labour there is so hard, so challenging. And uh, Nome seems to be the, the, the new rush place, uh, the best place to go. Dawson City itself is depopulated very quickly. Um, so it reaches a height of about 20,000 people, we think, at the beginning of 1899, and it falls back down really quite rapidly. And one week in August alone of the same year, about 8,000 miners leave the city to, to rush to Nome. So the, 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 the whole camp is sort of transported elsewhere. Those places like Dai, which these sort of big gateways or transit zones for the rush, they, they die out entirely. That, that now is a sort of ghost town because everyone, the merchants, the, the movers kind of move over in, into Nome, Alaska, where there's a perception of richer pickings. And certainly um, in the first phase of the Alaska rush, alluvial gold can be found in the sands and it's easily accessible. But as with the Yukon, it's those with the most cash um, that can then take it over because you require very specific technologies to access. It, again, is another sort of part of the story of really of like frustrated ambition. And um, the, the nostalgia, I guess, for 49 ramps up further because those who arrive in Alaska likewise find that um, the best claims have already been taken or you have to pull your, together your resources and work as a company uh, and you can only earn enough gold to make a wage. Um, so the dreams of like a bonanza, that that kind of homeward bounder um, that you get in California and in Victoria in the 1850s, really, are, are, they, they die in this period. It does sound like a very depressing time to be a gold miner, though I'm sure they must have enjoyed the, the gamble, as you say. Yeah, I mean, it's a very challenging time to be a gold miner. The sort of um, early observers sort of comment on those who arrive at the early phase of the rust. So sort of one, one description that sort of stuck in my mind. Uh, by a hotelier in um, Circle City, which is in Alaska and is sort of part of the rush movement. She sort of reflects, you know, everyone who comes here has this sort of strained eyeball look as if they expect to find gold in the trees or on top of a rock or you just lift up a tuft or clod of earth and there's the gold. Um, but there, really, I think that sense withers quite quickly. It's a sad tale in a way. and Part of it's connected to the physicality of the labour in, in the Yukon Territory. Because you can only mine in the winter months because uh, in the summer the, the ground is too waterlogged to deep to dig um, deeply in, into the uh, and to make kind of um, underground shafts. Um, so they mine in the winter, but that means they have to constantly melt permafrost. Um, so it's a very slow process of digging down to the, you know, removing the first layer of moss and earth, um, digging down to the permafrost and then lighting a fire. Once that's melted, digging down further. And eventually you get to the bedrock and there you might be lucky and there'll be a pay streak, so a kind of gravel bed of an old river which has gold in it, or you're not lucky and you should kind of move on. What happens is so if you are lucky, you then start to dig underground and that requires you to, um, to make the tunnels underground, set in huge fires um, to melt the, um, the soil underneath so you can remove the rubble and the dirt. And you, you stick all that in a big pile uh, ready for the spring. Uh, and in the spring, you spend your time um, washing dirt shovel after shovel full through flumes that are erected and they divert streams and creeks into kind of wooden flumes so they can wash the gravel and hopefully find the gold that lies beneath. Um, so it's incredibly back-breaking, labour-intensive work. Uh, those underground tunnels, they may be setting three to four fires a day 
uh, and removing about, in most cases, about 50 buckets full of, of, of dirt. Um, a bucket as a kind of train cart bucket, not a, a kind of eight-gallon bucket. And in the bigger enterprises, maybe 100 buckets full. So it's labour-intensive. It's also just filthy. I mean, I think the images of the, the period, it's sort of um, those creek beds, it's sort of like a lunar landscape where, you know, the environment has been, uh, you know, all the trees around the creeks have been removed, um, either for fuel for the fires or to create the flumes. The the moss has been removed. All of the water has been redirected, uh, and um, it's sort of like a moonscape if you look at the images there. And I think that too is um, the connection between like one's identity and labour. There is very tenuous. It's not enjoyable work. Um, it's incredibly backbreaking for, as I've been saying, so quite poor reward in the end. So it, it I think that adds to the nostalgia of the. Of the, of the rush uh, in this period. What's part of it too, I think, is that um, after the California rush, there's a sort of booster industry around gold uh, and um, the, the railroad companies that want to get the diggers to the site of extraction and the steamship companies and even just the kind of popular culture around gold rushes sort of boosts them so much and boosts the expectation about you know fabulous riches and wealth. Um, it can never really live up to, never really live up to those expectations. Uh, and... I think too because they're they're advertised as this way of uh, particularly of white men of realizing the dream of sort of free independent labor uh, and becoming wealthy yes but um, simply being you know laboring for oneself rather than for somebody else uh, which in the United States is very attractive free labor ideology um, the the disconnect between the expectation of that and then what they find when they get there is quite soul crushing uh, and soul destroying for many miners um, so they do talk about you know in the initial excitement of the rush it's all um, this reminds me of the days of 49 and um, it's just like going back to um, the days of 49 and by the end of it um, people are very um, dispirited very disappointed and um, uh, many of them in their diaries talk about how they they, they would never want to think about that sorry two-year period in their life again so I think there is a, true, a real sense among the miners of a kind of curtain falling on that phase of labor and life in the United States and in North America and in some of your previous answers, you talked about the First Nations people. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the impact that the Klondike Gold Rush had on them and their communities. The Klingit and um, Targish peoples, do in some ways, do manage to carve out profitable parts of the the economy to kind of thrive and adapt and and and, and succeed. Um, partly through portering, partly through trading, and partly through through participation in in the rushes themselves. I mean, what's, what happens, though, too, is that, I mean, these populations have been in a period of decline even before the rushes, which, which accelerates in some respects uh, as the rushes come. You know, after talking about, you know, the ways in which those mines work, it's very much reliant on, you know, the ex- exploitation of timber resources uh, and the destruction of those natural habitats. Once they remove the, the, the moss, the trees... And, uh, and destroy the ecosystem around the creeks, it becomes in many places unsustainable for any animal life to, to live there. And some, some scholars have sort of talked about how that those creeks in the, that part of the Yukon Valley, are, to all intents and purposes, don't, don't work as ecosystems anymore. And the sheer, I guess, increase in population in those areas um, destroys local moose populations, local deer populations. And so older lifeways and foodways uh, are in, in effect ended um, and it becomes harder and harder for those groups to maintain those earlier lifestyles and to compete too with the 
arrival, I guess, of larger merchants with bigger stock that what you know for for a time before the rush, they have been the Tlingit have been the intermediaries in this trade between white white traders and the the fur trappers and hunters of the interior. Uh, that that kind of ends. So many of the jobs that they do are part of the seasonal life of of, of First Nations peoples, and so the the packing or the um, even collecting timber, a part of a kind of seasonal rhythm of life, and they would do it for part of the time and then move on to another activity. Uh, as rushes are pushed out of the gold rush proper and into the kind of lower rungs of the rush economy and start to chop wood and things like that, those First Nations peoples are also pushed out of that that story. So it's a sto- it's very much a story of decline. I mean, the story of and the story of sort of Skookum Jim uh, is is very much emblematic of that that um, sort of process. So it's sort of, it's contested as to whether George Cormac or uh, Skookum Jim was the first discoverer of that that gold. And Cormac claims that it's that he is the discoverer and that Skookum Jim sort of later recalled that he was convinced by Cormac to make him the, the first discoverer because no one would ever believe that he was uh, and, and wouldn't grant him sort of two claims, which you're entitled to as the discoverer. So Cormac takes that. And at this point, Cormac is married to Skookum Jim's um, sister. And over the course of the, the rush, he then, uh, it, because of his desire to move at the rungs in, in society in Dawson City, uh, he leaves Sarah and marries a white, white woman. Uh, and this sort of contested story, I guess, of, of who finds the claim, I think they're now acknowledged as co-discoverers. Uh, and, and really the story of Cormac's attempt to achieve kind of um, respectable status in Dawson City really is emblematic of that, that kind of contested history between the Russias and the, and the First Nations peoples, which is really repeated, I guess, you know, all the sites of these Russias in the 19th century. Uh, you know, of, the, of all the impacts of the Russias, the two greatest are on the environment always and the indigenous populations of those, those places. And it's a similar story in California where the indigenous population goes through a a really precipitous decline in the um, mid uh, in the mid fifties. Likewise, in southern Africa, where it redraws migration patterns in that region, and uh, the mining companies sort of pioneer um, new forms of racial segregation as a means of controlling those labour populations. There's nothing quite like that um, in the Yukon Territory, but still, the impacts are, are greatly felt, I think, by those communities. And for my final question, is there anything that you think makes the Klondike Gold Rush stand out in the history of gold rushes? I think what makes Klondike stand out is um, two things. One is its brevity, which gives it, I think, a very particular kind of breathless character and is sort of married to the the story of nostalgia that we're talking about. That, you know, part of the excitement is the, uh, as the boosters have portrayed it, is, the, you know, this is the last chance to to participate in the in the world of the gold rush economy. There'll be no more like it anymore. Uh, and the other is the seasonal extremes, I think. So all mining work to some degree is, is dependent on seasonal variations. But the Klondike one, the Klondike gold rush, I think um, the extremes are so great that it gives the mining there a very particular and peculiar character. Uh, and gives travel to the to the to the gold fields there um, is is much greater hardship. Uh, and the mine itself is of a very peculiar quality and looks it looks very unlike what you, you see uh, elsewhere in terms of the types of technologies that are applied, you know, the use of fire and the use of steam to melt permafrost, although it does match sort of other patterns of industrialization and wage labor. So I think those are the two things that really stand out to me that make, make the Klondike um, and the Yukon Gold Rush um, different. That's great. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been lovely to speak to you. No, pleasure. No trouble. That was Stephen Tufnell. He's an Associate Professor of Modern United States History at the University of Oxford. 
and the co-editor of A Global History of Gold Rushes, available to buy now. And if you'd like more Canadian history, then do check out our Everything You Wanted to Know episode about the history of Canada, which was released on Sunday. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us again on Friday when we'll be discussing the great Georgian satirist, William Hogarth. Thank you.